Genesis 1, verse 26 to 28, and then in Psalm 65. Then God said, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves upon the ground. And then Psalm 65, starting at verse 9. You care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with corn, for so you have ordained it. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty and your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the desert overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks and the valleys are mantled with corn. They shout for joy and sing. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I confess I've never been much of a tree hugger. Despite uh, my senior colleagues, Charlie and Anita's uh, ongoing attempt to inculcate these values in our leadership and in our church, it hasn't really taken to me. And uh, despite my wonderful wife and her OCD when it comes to recycling, I confess I've always been rather reluctant. Offsetting carbon emissions, buy less, travel less, non-GM foods, organic meat, fork overnight. It all makes me rather weary and want to get on an aeroplane and fly to New York and eat a Big Mac, I must <laughs> confess. But a while ago, I was brought up short by Peter Harris, who is the founder of Arosha. And uh, in, a, in a very simple but very powerful talk, he laid out some of the facts and some of the effects of uh, our Western lifestyle. I'm aware many of you are very familiar and very uh, involved with this, so forgive my GCSE-level summary on it. But he basically laid out this argument. He said that consumption in the West drives land conversion and deforestation elsewhere. And this accelerates the depletion of the ozone layer uh, that fuels climate change. The warmer the planet means that agricultural land is damaged, turns to dust, animals and crops cannot thrive or even survive, and delicate ecosystems are unbalanced and destroyed. And the net result is that the poor suffer. It's always the poor that suffer. The warm of the planet brings an expansion of the oceans, a rise in sea levels. There are 200 million people living within one meter of sea level at threat, their whole livelihood, even their lives. And these are the poorest of the poor. It's always the poor that are at the sharp end, suffering the consequence of our neglect or greed. And so the challenge went out, and the challenge that I've been trying to heed and receive is simply this, that 
by my, or I put it as a question, does my lifestyle dishonor God? Dishonor God by neglecting his good creation that he made, that reveals him, that he's glorified in, that he likes, that he sustains by his spirit. Does my lifestyle neglect creation and then by inference, speak against and act against God? And secondly, does my lifestyle here in the West do violence to the poor elsewhere? This is not simply a, an ecological and pragmatic question. It's a fundamentally theological one. It's about complying with Christ, what Christ said was the greatest commandment, to love God and to love our neighbor. Our consumption damages creation, affects the poor, and that doesn't love God, and that doesn't love our neighbor. In 1966, it was a good year I was born, or some would say it was a bad year, the American historian and scientist, Dr. Lynn White, put out this challenge. He said, Christianity is to blame for the ecological crisis that threatens the world. He laid the blame at the feet of Christians and the church. Christianity, he says, is the most nature-exploiting religion that the world has ever seen. I think white is wrong. However, whilst Christianity may not to be blamed per se, Christians certainly have not helped. And often our theology has militated against obedience to that greatest command of loving God in his relationship to creation and loving our neighbor. The church has often been led astray by poor theology. There's been the influence of the theology of deism that essentially conceives of God as the grand architect, the grand designer, the great creator who makes the world and then goes walkabout and has no real ongoing personal and intimate relationship with the creation that he made. And this perception of God as somehow distant and absent uh, can lead to a disinterest and a detachment from nature. And theology becomes all metaphysical and abstract. I did my postgrad research uh, on a theologian, a great theologian in the main, called, well, always a great theologian and right in the main, called Karl Barth. Uh, and in particular, his understanding of God's relationship with creation. And Barth was a man of his time, and he was reacting to a 19th century romanticism wherein uh, people collapsed God into creation and made no real distinction between God and nature and God and culture. And in its place, Bart put forward this conception of God as the holy other, totalita alita, the God who touches the world like a tangent to a circle. He said that God's relationship with creation is simply and purely and primarily focused in 
Christ and in Scripture and in the Word. He actually wrote a book with the great title Nine. Not the number nine, but the German nine. No. And in this book nine, he basically said that God doesn't have anything to do with creation and culture. It's all about Christ. And he went on to argue that uh, creation was simply the backdrop for the uh, encounter with God. That it was, if you like, the stage for the play. That nature and all its wonder was simply props. Now, Bart was a wonderful man, and he had a great theology, and he elevated Christ, but he did so by negating creation, and I think he was wrong to do that. But generations have been influenced by him. Deism. The church has often been uh, misled by a theology of dualism. This is more common. A division between spirit and matter, wherein the attribution of value is given to the spirit and the spiritual, and matter doesn't really matter. Leads to a negation of creation, a downplaying of its worth. An emphasis on saving souls for eternity leads to a devaluing of the body. Talk of new heavens and a new earth lead to a devaluing of this earth, the existing one. And certainly some theologies of the end time, what they called eschatology, the kind of left-behind series understanding of how God wraps it all up. This, I think, has contributed to an environmental crisis. So many are influenced by this worldview, wherein the Christians and the church are going to be zapped off the planet and go to the new heaven somewhere above and that this world is going to go up in smoke. Why bother looking after it? It's going to burn up anyway. At times, Christians have been so otherworldly that they've been of little earthly good. And for many, our theology owes more to Lord of the Rings and the elves at Rivendell, wanting to escape to the undying lands than it does to an understanding of the God who created this universe and put us here at the center of it. Well, I've got three simple points. Not because you are, but because I am. And the first is this. My father is a farmer. I'm from the West Country. We say farmer. My father is a farmer. In John 15 and verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the farmer. Now, sometimes that's translated as gardener, and that's based not upon a faithful translation of the Greek word, but the sense of trying to interpret it in light of the context of true vine. But the Greek word's very clear. My father is a farmer. The Greek word is georgos, from which we get the word George. Any Georges here? No, my father is a George. But the word George comes from a conjunction of two words, gay, to do with the earth, the ground, geography, geology, geophysics, and so on, earth, and ergo, to work. A worker of the land, and a worker of that which grows on the land. My father is a farmer. This is actually an understanding that was in ancient Greece where Zeus, the father of all the gods, was called Zeus Georgos, 
George Zeus, the farmer. Because all life is sustained by creation and by farming. And this attribute, this predicate was applied by the Greeks to God. And this title connects us with the first revelation that we have of God in Scripture in Genesis 1. The very first thing we learn about God is that he exists. The second thing we learn about God is that he creates the world, the universe. The third thing we learn about God is that he likes what he creates. The fourth thing that we learn about him is that he makes humankind in his image to exercise his nature and character and purpose on this earth that he's created and that he likes and to nurture it. Professor of theology and ecology Norman Wurzbar of Duke Divinity School. What a great job to have. He said, it's a great line, he says, God loves soil. God loves soil. God was the first to have green fingers. Or green lips, because the Bible says he spoke the world into being. Isn't this quote from Richard Borkham, a great theologian of the late 20th century? God is a farmer. The Bible often portrays God doing the work of a farmer. He plants orchards and vineyards. He irrigates and prunes. He sows grain. He waters it. He reaps abundant harvests. But sometimes he's disappointed he waits for the fruit, but it doesn't come, and so he removes the fig tree and plants another. The Bible is bursting with agricultural imagery. My father is a farmer. In the psalm that was read to us, Psalm 65, you might like to read it again today or tomorrow morning when you wake up. Wonderful psalm. You care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain. You drench its furrows. You level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with bounty. Your carts overflow with abundance. The harvest. The grasslands of the wilderness overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks and the valleys are mantled with grain. If we want to understand the nature and character of God as revealed in Scripture, one significant motif, which I've never heard a sermon on before, my father is a farmer. God is a farmer and he loves creatures and he loves crops because he created them. He is glorified by them, Psalm 19 says. He sustains them by his spirit, Job says. He is revealed through it, says Paul in Romans chapter 1. And he's returning to set up the new heaven and earth on it to rule and reign therein. My father is a farmer. And you cannot love God and neglect creation. You just can't do it. If you love him, if you honor him, if you're committed to him, then you will care about the things that he cares for. And he is one who cares for creation. My father is a farmer. Secondly, my forefathers were farmers. They actually were. I've always had a strong, uh, rather strange, but a strong sense of delight that my people were farmers. They farmed down in the West Country, uh, in Somerset, and uh, uh, around Shepton Mallet and 
all on the Somerset levels were our farms, and they farmed in Wiltshire, farming people. But theologically and spiritually, our forefathers are farmers. You know, the Jewish tradition teaches that Adam was taught how to sow, says it in the Apocrypha, how to sow seeds in paradise by the archangel Michael. Isn't that great? I mean, probably not true, almost certainly not true, but I like it. <laughs> Apocrypha says that Abraham invented a special, apocryphal writing said that he invented a special plow that was able to open up the earth and they dropped the seeds in but then closed the earth so the birds wouldn't come and nick the seeds. What a wonderful thing. But these myths show just how much the the Jewish people venerated creation and elevated it to a profound spirituality. And the working of the land was almost an act of prayer and devotion and a mark of profound spirituality and connectedness with God. The very first thing we learn about Adam, our first forefather, is that he was created in God's image, stated four times in two passages in Genesis. The first thing we learn about God is that he is. The second, that he creates. The first thing we learn about humankind is that he is made in God's image. The second, that he's given responsibility to nurture God's creation. There's much debate about what it means for humankind to be made in the image of God. And lots of people spend lots of time pursuing their research and so on on this. Is it speech? Is it our capacity for rationality, our eternal spirit, the reciprocity between male and spirit and all of that stuff? But I think that the text in context makes it quite clear that to be made in the image of God is that we look after creation. That's what it is. Let's look at the text if you've got a Bible. Genesis 1, verse 26. God said, let us make humankind in our image after our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We rule over them. And not to be scared of spiders, we rule them. Verse 27, so God, really, it's theological. So God, with the fall came fear of bugs, but it wasn't there before. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Okay, for what reason? God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature on the ground. A lot of work done on this in the church. Often it leads to politics, but I think that's to miss the point. I think it's to do with nature. Some may balk, and they do, at the terms of rule over and subdue. In fact, Lynn White says that passage is responsible for the church ruining nature and creation. But it's not true. The term rule over the animal kingdom, found twice, verse 26 and verse 28, the Hebrew raw door, is used of a king ruling his kingdom. There's nothing there about exploitation, simply about sovereignty. Like God rule, ruling over humankind, Adam rules over creation. And God's rule is a benevolent one. His is a kind kingdom. And we, in ruling over nature, it's a kind 
and benevolent ruling. Of course, the text is clear. There's an ontological distinction between us and animals and the animal kingdom. What, however you conceive about us coming, whether created separately and distinctly or as part of a process of evolution, I leave it to others to work that through, is the, the point is we alone of all creation are made in the image of God and we are to rule over the animals, not vice versa. 3,000 years ago in Egypt, they worshipped cats. They worshipped all sorts of animals. They worshipped bugs. They used to have signet rings with bugs on. They worshipped them as gods. They worshipped, as I said, the cat. Cats have never forgotten that. <laughs> Ever since they felt that really important. You ever seen a cat? They think they should be worshipped. Not a bit of it. There's an ontological distinction here. Adam is God's vice-regent, ruling in his place, exercising. He alone has the image of God, ruling over the creation that God made. Rule, twice it says, and subdue it. That's a strong word. It is a heavy word in the Hebrew. Tough. It suggests that nature resists the rule of Adam. Uh, and, and without that, it would grow wild. But it's not oppressive. It's not abusive. It's not exploitative. It's about taming. Taming, that's the word. Like the taming of a stallion. In Genesis 1, 26 to 28, there is a parallel passage in the next chapter, chapter 2. And this explains how humankind is to exercise that rule, how humankind is to subdue, how humankind, our first forefathers, are to be farmers like God the farmer. And in 2 verse 15 it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. This is not abusive, this is not exploitative, this is nurture and care and tender and bringing out the best. Rule and subdue here, tend and keep, look like protection and conservation, not exploitation. And then it goes on in verse 20 of chapter 2, that God brought the animals, all the livestock and the birds of the sky and the wild animals, and Adam and Eve named them. And again, this is be, this is what it is to be in the image of God. It's to join with God in that creative process. In Hebrew thought, naming wasn't simply giving a title. It wasn't simply giving categories it was of species. But in Hebrew thought, to name was to actually impart and to infuse some very essence of its being. So when Adam and Eve were involved in that naming there's a sense where they're exercising as god's vice regents this creative power i was amused that in the geneva bible i've got an original one it's a beautiful thing uh, and and the footnotes are, are wonderful this was the protestant text for uh well until the king james but for a long time after that it says in this passage that the reason god put Adam and Eve to work doing these things was, quote, because he would not, God would not have them idle. He wouldn't have them lazy. So they're in the garden, according to the Protestant Calvinistic 
theologians thought, well, they're lazy in the garden. They're not doing out. So you can have to look after creation and name it. Let's keep them busy. And that's so sad. I mean, Protestant work ethic, you know, it's a problem. That's not the point. We were there not for something to do, not so we wouldn't be idle, not because, the, you know, the devil makes hands, you know, work for idle hands and all of that stuff. Not a bit of it. It was part of what it meant to be made in the image of God that we tend the creation that God had made and we nurture it and we keep it and we preserve and we conserve. We produce crops, we look after the animals and we name them and enable them to flourish. Our work in creation, God is a farmer and, we're, and our forefathers were farmers and this is not filling up time. It's not even pragmatic for food. That's not the main thing. It's, it's the imitation of God. It's a divine work. My father is a farmer. My forefathers were farmers. And then lastly, we've got to think like farmers. Many of the parables of Jesus and the metaphors employed in the Old Testament rely upon an understanding of something of the mind of a farmer. They rely upon an understanding of an agrarian culture. You know, the Israelites held three harvest festivals a year to give thanks to God and to understand God's provision and God's action in nature. We don't even hold one harvest festival anymore. I mean, some churches in some places might, but we, have, we haven't had one in all my 19 years here. No harvest festival, because we're so divorced. In an increasing urbanized and industrialized and, I think, individualized world, it's caused us to lose connection with creatures and with crops. It just, surely it just comes out of a lorry in, in a sort of polystyrene packet, you know, with a bit of cellophane on, doesn't it? Before I was a priest, I was a butcher. I know it doesn't. We know it doesn't, and yet we're divorced from it. We're divorced from the... Th uh, we're divorced from the source in the land and on the land and the God who prospers that which is in the land and on the land. It is said that everyone will once in their life need a policeman or a lawyer or an undertaker or a surgeon once in their life. But three times a day we need farmers. Three times every day if we have three meals a day. We're reliant upon the farmers. I'm not suggesting at all that we should all become farmers or even have little small holdings or out like that. I'm not suggesting at all that we return to an agrarian culture in order that we might know God and know ourselves better. Although some have. In the Reformation, when, uh, in the German Reformation, um, Karlstadt, who was Luther's sort of right-hand man, he was his tutor originally, after he had encountered charismatic or spiritual renewal in the Reformation, he held three doctorates. Three. I think that's greedy, don't you? But he had three of them either. But he handed them all back, and he went to be a farmer. And he was rubbish at it. 
And there's actually a letter from Luther to him saying, you know, it's just basically saying, look, mate, you're not, you're not any good at this. You, you haven't been trained in it. You don't know what you're doing. You're starving to death. Get someone in to run the farm and get back to school. Anyway, um, but some people, you know, when they're renewed, it's a work of the Spirit to suddenly connect them again to creation. It's not an abstraction. It's a sense of understanding of who God is and who we are. The father of English poetry, George Herbert, what a wonderful poet. He left the royal courts in order to be a parson to the farmers in Wiltshire. And there met with God. And people met with God through him. The farmers, it was said, whenever he walked by, would take off their caps and bow because he was just somehow anointed by God. But he met with God there in that place. I'm not idealizing farming. It's demanding and often financially very difficult. Being a farmer doesn't equate with knowing God. There are many atheist farmers. I've been to young farmers' parties, trust me. And being a farmer does not necessarily mean that you love crop and creature. Not all do. Although I watched a farmer this week on a, on a program just remembering the foot and mouth disease, and burst out crying because they lost the whole herd. And they'd known that herd and, and, they'd, and they'd known their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and so on, and they'd been there at the birth of all these animals and they were just taken. But here's the thing. If God is a farmer and our first forefathers were ordained as farmers, we need to think like farmers. And we need to care for creation and make sure those who are tending it are caring for it because we're, we're wed to it. And it's our destiny and it's our duty. One farmer who's also a poet, Wendell Berry, amazing writer, said this, good farmers who take seriously their duties as stewards of creation and of their land's inheritors contribute to the welfare of society in more ways than society usually acknowledges or even knows. These farmers produce valuable goods, of course, but they conserve the soil. They conserve water. They conserve wildlife. They conserve open space. They conserve scenery. They conserve. One of the marks of the demonic is to ruin. The mark of the demonic is undoing. And if God ordains that we uh, are nurture and care and tend and bring out the best in nature. The mark of the demonic will always be to oppose the will of God and the decree of God. So the demonic will want to see the undoing of these things, the ruin, the rape, and the desecration of the land. Tolkien, he saw this in Lord of the Rings towards the end. There's, it's not in the movies. You'd have to read the book and get the t-shirt. It's brilliant. There's a scene where, where um, Saruman and, and uh, oh, I forgot the name. I should have written it down. But Saruman returns with one of his, Sharky, I think the guy's called, and they return to the Shire. The chapter, I think, is called The Scourging of the Shire. And they return. Uh, and uh, before the hobbits get back, they've come in and they've ruined it. And the crops are overgrown. The mushroom farms are not there. And uh, I forgot the name of the farmer, Rosie's dad, but they've arrested the farmer. They've arrested the farmer. The crops are overgrown. There is ruin. And back come the hobbits, and they go to war to get rid of 
uh, Saruman and Sharki and his rogues. The demonic undermines creation and nature and wants to ruin it. I need to finish. This week, research came out. I don't know if you saw that worldwide, uh, World Wildlife Fund and the Zoological Society in London indicated that animal populations plummeted by 58% between 1970 and 2012. 58%. And they say we're on track to reach 67% by 2020. What does that mean? That means that only two, that only one third of all those beautiful species that God created and man named still exist if the facts are right. They certainly point in the right direction, if those facts are right. And that is because in the main of human neglect, human consumption, human abuse, rather than do what we're called to do, to be and do in the image of God in nature, we failed. And when we do that, we fail God. And we fail nature and we fail one another. In Amos chapter 5 and verse 16, Amos, you'll remember, he says, I'm not a prophet nor a prophet's son. Called to be a prophet. He says, I'm not a prophet, and I'm not a prophet's son. Well, what are you then? And then he says uh, that he is a shepherd and a farmer. Don't call me a prophet. I'm a shepherd and a farmer. Much better title, thanks very much. And he came and he prophesied to Israel about their sins. Their sins were to do with injustice. Uh, in, uh, uh, immorality and idolatry. But uh, he says in chapter 5 and verse 16, call the farmers to weep. Things are in a real mess. What are we going to do? He says, call the farmers to weep. Why? Because they are the closest to the land. And they see the consequence of our sin and our injustice. The very land is crying out. In light of the situation that we find ourselves in, we need to call for the farmers to weep. We need to ask God for his farmer's heart, and we need to ask God for Adam's farmer's hands. My father is a farmer. Amen?